Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rising Ecosystem Podcast, an exciting new regular show that lifts the lid on the world of startup ecosystems. To lead you through this fast-moving and constantly evolving space of entrepreneurship and technology, will be me, Alex Owen Hunt, FDI's Global Markets Editor. And me, Jesse Ballo-Perez, a tech journalist and editor of Unleash, a new media platform covering the future of work. In each episode, we speak to experts from the startup world about the theme shaping investment, innovation and job creation. In this first episode, Alex and I hope to answer a crucial question, why startup ecosystems matter. For years, the narrative has been dominated by well-established technology hubs such as Silicon Valley. But now the startup ecosystem concept has been exported and replicated across the globe. Indeed, you may have come across terms such as entrepreneurs, co-working spaces, accelerators, incubators, innovation hubs and venture capital funds. A bit of an alphabet soup, you could say. But what we mean when we say ecosystem are the communities that help support the creation and growth of startups. That is, people and organizations from across the private, public and academic sectors that work together to help new businesses form and grow. Now, you're probably wondering why all this matters. To answer that very question, we've invited two distinguished guests to join us on the podcast. Our first guest is Eileen Burbage, a partner at Passion Capital, which is a prominent London-based venture capital firm that invests in early-stage startups. Eileen also serves as the UK Treasury's special envoy for fintech. And up until she stepped down in January 2020, Eileen was the chair of Tech Nation, formerly known as Tech City UK, which is a semi-public administrative body to help support the digital economy across the UK. We're also joined by Eric van der Kleij, who for years led Level 39, a well-known fintech accelerator program based in London. Eric has worked for the Department for International Trade and was the first CEO of Tech Nation. He's also just launched a new product called Edenbase, a new ecosystem, knowledge base and fund created to support entrepreneurs in the post-COVID world. Eileen and Eric, welcome to the Rising Ecosystem podcast. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. So Eileen, I want to start with you. Why do you think technology ecosystems matter? Well, I think they matter, first of all, because that's where you see sort of higher density of, you know, ideas, people, hopefully diversity of thoughts, and where you start to see snowball effects take place. And that just means that, um, you know, great ideas spawn other great ideas. Uh, People feel supported in what they're doing. They end up finding kindred spirits. Uh, There's a lot of serendipity in terms of, you know, collaboration, partnerships, working relationships. And so I think ecosystems and hubs, therefore, that try and coalesce this or bring this together for people, whether they happen organically, which is often the case, or are sort of created or constructed by other forces, I think are really important. Cool. And I have a question for you, Eric. So we all know that governments can obviously play a crucial role in creating ecosystems of this nature. Um, But from your experience and also your perspective, do you think that this is the best approach? Um, It can be. It can be uh, amazing, but it also can get in the way a little bit. So you've got to calibrate it quite carefully when you're at government level thinking about, for example, policy that affects entrepreneurships and ecosystems. Uh, One of the most important things to do when you're doing that is listen. And uh, at the time that we were doing it, we, I think, had the most accessible central government policymaking group that really wanted to authentically listen and then implement policy to support, uh, you know, the startups, the tech industry and uh, the ecosystems as a whole. Um, But that's not always the case. And so sometimes 
government uh, initiatives and diktats can cause as you know as much harm in some cases as they can do good but done well they can be brilliant and very supportive to accelerate uh, grassroots that are already occurring I think that makes a lot of sense and I remember those days though even though they seem like light years away now in 2020. <laughs> oh I won't forget them either they were amazing time weren't they really quite special wasn't it? Indeed. Salian, come back to you Eileen I mean looking at the UK as a case study and of course both of you are based in the UK um, what was the state of tech like before these government government-led initiatives such as Tech Nation? Like Jesse was just saying and Eric was saying, I don't think any of us will forget it. And it seems like light years away. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of before the government got involved here in the UK, you started to see what we've already referred to as sort of these organic, you know, developing, um, I don't know what you want to call them. Communities is even overstating it. Hubs is certainly overstating it. Sort of collections and gatherings of like-minded people who were wanting to look at how technology-enabled propositions might come to bear, right? You already had here in the UK, you know, successes in the likes of lastminute.com, Bebo, you know, Friends Reunited, Mumsnet, um, maybe even Last.fm was just kind of getting started. And so there was already pockets of individuals and groups of individuals who were, you know, seeing what the internet could do, what you could do online, um, what, what, it might mean for people to stay connected or you know converse with people and and find new connections um, through the internet and and how technology is going to be playing a really big part of that and you then also started to see different kinds of companies then even if they were focusing on different types of propositions looking to try and hire similarly you know minded or skilled people people started looking for you know um, network operations people, uh, web developers, app developers, for example. And so the ecosystem was, was sort of maturing. I, I guess I think of it like more maybe of a toddler state, <laughs> just finding its feet, you know, had taken maybe a couple of first steps, uh, had some great successes, maybe made it across the room, but was trying to figure out the playbook <laughs> or rhythm. Um, maybe I can only take that metaphor so far. And I think that, uh, you know, it, it's the right thing to recognize that the ecosystem was organically developing here in the UK, mostly in certain parts of London. But then as Eric was sort of mentioning, it's also the right thing to acknowledge that the government um, and its attention then on that sector and on that organically developing hub helped to accelerate what was already happening. I love that toddler analogy and, and certainly we, we can't refer to the tech industry as a baby in any shape or form nowadays uh, with these behemoths we see all across the world. But Eric, do you, do you agree with that sort of toddler uh, metaphor in the sense it was baby steps and building up the ecosystem? And, and I suppose, is it kind of an exponential growth curve from, from that very emergent stage, the nascent stage, up to, <laughs> up to the, the rapid growth you see sort of as ecosystems develop? Honestly, I, I love that. I have not heard that before. I am so borrowing that one. Thank you so much, Eileen. But it's such a great description. And what do you feel like then when you're trying to, you know, uh, encourage this? Do you maybe feel like a slightly overambitious parent, possibly? Uh, so, I mean, it's possible that you could look at us in that way. Um, I think we were actually very bold in our ambition. And what we wanted to do is persuade our nascent, I'm not sure if I can keep using toddlers, uh, our, you know, our, our startups to be really bold and to be ambitious and to, to really go for it. And, um, uh, and I think that helped because it sent a signal that both at an ambition level, advocacy level and policy level, 
we were right behind it. Um, quite right that it, it always should acknowledge that it was grassroots. But uh, I wonder what stage you would think we are at the moment. Are we in the teenage tantrum years or, uh, or, or you know, are we dating yet? Uh, you know, um, uh, are we at grandchildren phase yet? I mean, I've got three grandchildren. Does that make me the granddaddy of tech? Probably. <laughs> Is the UK leaving the European Union like a teenager sneaking out the house? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I don't want to take that analogy. But, uh, um, but of course, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, developing the ecosystem in London and you were the first CEO of Tech Nation in that sense and worked alongside the Department for International Trade. And this, the, clearly the impact of these initiatives developing the UK digital tech sector were very profound. But when you look at it from a sort of foreign investment lens, um, do you think how do you think it works? Is it, is it is the chicken and egg situation? Is it the ecosystem develops and then a, a foreign company might want to set up in the UK and get access to that? Or is it the other way around? I mean, how do you see the development of ecosystems affecting the attractiveness of the UK as a, an investment destination? Well, I mean, the field of ecosystems and clusters is studied, is well studied. Some of the most famous uh, people behind these studies are Professor Michael Porter, who did a lot around Stanford University, the you know Silicon Valley ecosystems and how they grew up in there. He was he was talking about the theory of having a very large research-based university, government contracts, you know the DARPA times, and those creating uh, ecosystems that were, if you like, government-funded. And then you've got the the school of thoughts, be you know the the, the school of the you know the more Jane Jacobs type of coalescing of the creative classes, which is far more what was happening, I think, in East London, where you had people like Damien Hurst and his um, crazy party friends, you know, renting warehouses and, and throwing parties. But these were the creative classes and the people that were doing, uh, quite interesting, right next to the city of London, they were designing things like, you know, annual reports and they were graphic designers and then evolved into becoming uh, coders and developers. And so you've got, uh, different theories behind how these ecosystems and clusters grow. And the trick is when you're asked to do what I was to, uh, asked to do, which was to create a strategy for amplifying and accelerating that, the trick is to take what's there and amplify it, shine a light on it, create the policy environment that supports it, but then get out the way because you can do more harm than good by hanging around. But from an inward investment point of view, if you do that right, almost regardless of where your cluster is, you, you figure out what's there, amplify that, and then you know, intervene and fill in the gaps where you need to, you, you, you tend to be able to create some sort of cluster. Although nowadays I am quite favoring the thematic cluster. Um, you know, the, the idea that certain areas can develop concentrations of talent, say, in AI or healthcare or, um, you know, and, and as I did with FinTech in, uh, in, in Canary Wharf. These concentrations of clusters definitely accelerate super growth. And so I think that's probably the area to focus on in the future. And then once you're known as having a concentrated cluster that supports super growth with some evidence, you find that you become the destination of choice and inward investment becomes quite natural. 
Cool. I'm just going to take it back to 2016 very, very quickly, which is, I think, around the time that I joined what was then known as Tech City News. Um, and clearly there was a huge onus on London as a tech ecosystem, but actually there was a lot of um, talk and noise in the industry about how um, a lot of these clusters outside of London were actually suffering significantly. They weren't getting the same attention from from VCs for very, you know understandable reasons, um, and actually they weren't really at the forefront of what was happening, at least in the media in in the UK. So I'm going to go to Eileen first, but then obviously Eric, feel free to chime in as well. Um, I just wonder what your perspective is in terms of like whether you think these government initiatives have actually helped UK ecosystems outside of London. Yeah, so my view is 100%, but I think it's probably more relevant to ask somebody who's probably sitting outside of London, because I guess naturally I would say that. But the reason I say that is because I think it's probably all relative. And on this question, I would think about what would happen, what would have happened naturally had the government not decided, first of all, let's rebrand Tech City, let's call it Tech Nation, let's actually make a concerted effort to you know, position what we do and what we're funding out of DCMS to be about emphasizing you know, digital excellence and strength across the whole of the UK and to make sure that it doesn't look like we're just putting a microscope onto London. And so if the government hadn't done that, it would have just remained organic, I suppose, outside of London. And to your point, I don't think that was, that was already happening. So that's something that wasn't taking place. I don't think investors were naturally gravitating towards the North or going out West or taking a look at propositions um, outside of it. I do think, um, as Eric said, you know, earlier, then the government shining a light on success stories up north, you know, the Huck Group in Manchester, uh, holding showcases for investors and encouraging them to go up north or bringing investors down to London. I think that made a really big difference. And I think in terms of connecting the various cities, whether it's Edinburgh and trying to make sure that people were aware of how much great financial services talent there was there. Uh, you know, how much was happening in Bristol, what was happening in Leeds, what was happening in Newcastle. Um, all of that was incredibly I think um, instrumental because I'm not sure that you know investors even like myself would have paid any attention if somebody hadn't really stuck it in my face and said, "Look at these examples of companies that are happening, you know, that are being formed in these cities, in these places outside of London." And that's what made me think about it in the first place. Otherwise, I would have probably just been satisfied with the volume and the deal flow that I was seeing in London. So I think in this case, it made a really big difference. Now that makes total sense. I just remember back in the day, like going out into these, literally being like dropped into these ecosystems, whether it was Norwich or Bristol or Oxford, and the line people would give you is like, oh my gosh, a London-based reporter, what are you doing here? Like, finally, someone's interested in, in what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we should be competing on the same kind of level as, you know, companies in, in bigger ecosystems such as London. Um, conscious of the fact also, Eric, that I'm sure that you have a lot to add to that question, so feel free to chime in if you wish. Yeah, it was a, it was a challenging uh, policy decision to focus on one part of one city, if you like. It was quite, and, and quite a bold move for central governments to even consider doing something like that. Uh, and also quite a risk for me to, to take a role like that because I knew it wasn't exactly going to be plain sailing. But the thing that was important is that the thriving ecosystem of investors and talent really wasn't there before. And so without our intervention to amplify that cluster and work really hard to attract investors and startups from all over the world, things like 
uh, when we had the Olympics, Ollie Barrett came to us with this terrific idea of the startup games and getting all the startups, hundreds of startups from around the world to come to uh, the Olympic Park to compete in, if you like, the startup games. And then also doing this Super Angel Summit at the same time and bringing all the angels that we knew from around the world to come to the UK and shine a light on what was going on. Now, what this did, it created momentum and opportunity for entrepreneurs all over the country to drop into that and meet these investors when they would have had to go to Silicon Valley and bang on the door to, to see them. And the great news behind that is that some of those investors realized they were getting terrific deal flow in these clusters that uh, Eileen mentions. And it, has, it certainly helped uh, shine a light on it and amplify it. But if we hadn't intervened and done that convening work that we did, uh, that you know, it would have been even harder for entrepreneurs to reach those those investors at that time. So I think it's actually fair to say that those clusters, the ecosystems, are in a much better place in 2020 than they were even five years ago, right? But since you have the floor, Eric, I'm going to pick on you next. <laughs> so, so you currently run Frontier Network, which is a global network of tech hubs. Um, so from your experience, and this is something that I'm really keen um, to find out exactly what you think, because it's something that I've written about time and time again. And that is, you know, in your opinion, what does the ideal collaborative framework between public and private sectors look like? And I realize that's a very big question, but still keen to hear what you've got to say. Well, I don't mind um, sharing what the what what I think the ideal one is, um, because I've had quite a lot of experience from both sides, from the government and the policymaking side, as well as the completely private uh, side. Uh, just one uh, correction: actually, I've just launched the my latest ecosystem, which is Edenbase Edenbase.com, uh, which is really a COVID-native ecosystem. Right? It's designed for now. It's launched now, and so it's actually designed to be part of the recovery. And so, uh, and I've, we've done that, uh, my co-founder and I, completely privately, but why? Because we've had the pump primed already for us. So the perfect private-public initiative is where um, public, uh, sorry, government primes the pump to address gaps in, if you like, policy or funding where there, where, where there, you know, where there is a gap. Uh, in the UK in particular, you know, I'd probably shine a light on things like SEIS. You know, the amount and volume and number of investments that that unlocked from, uh, you know, just in individuals with disposable capital, risk capital, that created a huge number of opportunities. And it was an intervention that actually then can be taken over by the private sector because the riskier first part of it has been dealt with by risk capital, which has been somewhat de-risked by the right kind of policy making. Um, but then when you, when you go to the growth stage and the scale up stage where you truly get very powerful economic impact, the right kind of intervention to make are things like, for example, the British Business Bank, who have become one of the most important co-investors or co-LPs of choice, uh, inspiring funding in match funding, the next generation of investors. Uh, and these kind of initiatives are going to be even more important as we evolve through COVID and through Brexit. Sure. And just to clarify for listeners, the SEIS scheme that Eric was uh, expertly referring to there is the Seed Enterprise Investment Scheme, which mobilise lots of capital towards startups in the UK. 
Eileen, to bring you back in here, I mean, we've heard a lot there about the public-private, um, the ideal sort of collaborative framework, and feel free to, to add any points to Eric in that sense. But you also had experience in many other tech hubs around the world, um, and, uh, you know, you were in Silicon Valley um, for a while uh, and have, have worked in, in many prominent tech companies. Um, do you think there's other factors that uh, come to mind that, that really define the success of technology hubs um, you know, outside of the UK? I think that from what I've seen, actually, probably the most, um, what's the word, you know, persistent or tenacious founders and entrepreneurs probably pay very little attention to government interventions and support schemes. And so it ends up usually being, as we've talked about it, you know, an accelerant or something to kind of grease the skids, um, probably after an entrepreneur's already opted, you know, to be somewhere. Having said that, I think there's a lot governments can do to try and attract people to be someplace in the first place. And, you know, I think it's uh, probably safe to say now that, you know, around the time of the European referendum, for example, here in the UK, we didn't always have the best sort of messaging or look like the most welcoming, you know, country in the world for, for a variety of different people, right? And so that might have had a negative impact on whether or not certain people that are probably entrepreneurs today decided that they would move here after university or instead of university or come and take a job in the UK versus somewhere else in the world. Um, and so really, I would say that the best things, you know, that government can do to support burgeoning ecosystems of any sector, you know, is to be uh, welcoming of talent, of skills, to value those um, traits for any kind of economic development, and also then to shine a spotlight, as Eric has said before, and, and in a lot of cases, get out of the way. Not to burden um, ecosystems or sectors with unnecessary regulation or premature regulation or assessment about restrictions or concerns, and really to try and be supportive about what kind of innovation can come out of you know, great creative minds and entrepreneurs. So as a partner at Fashion Capital, um, to what extent do you think ecosystems have shaped your investment strategy? And I know you touched on it earlier, but just kind of like a more detailed overview in terms of how it's changed over the years or whether it has changed at all. I think it has changed it, but I don't know that it's um, had direct impact. I think it probably helps to validate, for example, if we are to see a company that's coming from, you know, where the founders are from Manchester, uh, given what we know now and the exposure that we've had because of how that ecosystem is developed and how the government has helped to shine the spotlight, it's not as if we need to, you know, second guess or sort of, um, you know, go further diligence whether or not a company can be successful in Manchester. And obviously a lot of that credit is due to the Huck Group. But again, the government sort of shining a light on that and that experience, and that helps a lot. Similarly, if I think about other sectors or clusters or ecosystems outside the UK, you know, when we see deal flow that comes from Stockholm or from Berlin or from Tallinn, Estonia, you know, it's very clear that there are really burgeoning, flourishing ecosystems in all of those uh, cities, for example. So it's a point of validation. Um, it might be different if it was a city in which we hadn't heard about an ecosystem developing. It might give us pause, for example. Sure, that makes total sense. Now, we've talked a lot about the development of London, some hubs outside of London. We've been very UK focused and please feel free to carry on doing so since this series is focusing on UK ecosystems. But I want to ask both Eric and Eileen. So what emerging tech ecosystems are you most excited about at the moment and why? Eric, I'll come to you first. What's, what's really, uh, you know, tantalizing your taste buds at the moment in terms of uh, ecosystems? Uh, well, obviously the one I've just launched, Edenbase.com, shameless plug. Um, so go and check it out. We just launched our startup competition. But 
to answer it in more detail, the reason we have is because we think that um, part of the recovery and part of the growth that we need uh, provides us with an amazing opportunity around productivity. So what we're particularly looking for are actually existing companies with existing technology that could be transformed into super performers by the application of frontier technology like AI, machine learning, uh, blockchain, you know, uh, 5G, um, AR, VR. These are technologies which are still relatively new to actually some very old traditional ideas and businesses that could really transform and make them much more productive and much more efficient. So that's our main investing thesis. We're also um, doing a fast track. We're looking for solutions in uh, COVID beating solutions for places, uh, spaces and travel. Things like nursing homes, offices, just, you know, even a meeting room, things like that. It's really important for us to be able to get uh, these COVID beating solutions. So that's our, our main focus uh, there. But I would say the ones that excite me most are what I alluded to earlier, the thematic ones. Um, ones that focus on, for example, sustainability. That's going to be huge. ESGs, we could run a huge ecosystem on, on just the ESGs. ESGs are everything. It's funny, I wasn't really so connected with the importance of, uh, you know, in environment sustainability and governance as a thesis. But it is just now so important or about to become even more important in everything from asset management right through to, you know, waste. That I think that those and um, energy will probably be the ecosystems that I would be keen to focus on in almost any territory. And in fact, in some, place, in some cases, when we think about the expansion strategy for what we're into, the less well-known destinations actually could provide you with an even richer opportunity for test beds and things like that, because you're, you're, you haven't got as much legacy to, to replace. Certainly, Eileen, I'm going to have to bring it over to you now. Um, sure. Eric said a lot there. And I, I do want to make the point, I mean, it's also, you know, ESG, arguably a synonymous acronym is STG, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And certainly, you know, startups, as well as more established companies expanding across borders and making investments, can play a huge role in uh, driving those forward. And certainly with the COVID crisis, we've sort of hit a hurdle in, in achieving those that, that long-term goal set out by the UN. Um, but that's just a side note. I want to ask you about the exciting ecosystems you've got your eyes on at the moment. Um, are you similar to Eric? Are you looking in the thematic sense or uh, how do you view it from a passion capital perspective? Yeah, so really boringly, I probably do agree with Eric, um, much to your chagrin, maybe. Um, it's it's uh, probably disappointing for you as sort of podcast uh, hosts. But, you know, I think that I do agree that there are thematic ecosystems that we look for. And so you know, one thing that Passion is known for and probably gives gets too much credit for because it's, I think, just by virtue of being based in London, which is an ecosystem for financial services for hundreds of years now. But we have done a lot of fintech investing, and I think we will continue uh, to focus on that ecosystem because now you're seeing early cohorts of early employees coming out of, you know, Go Cardless, of Monzo Bank, of Revolut, of Starling. And they're, they're starting fantastic companies and businesses, and they won't all be in financial services. But we do like um, seeing what these really talented people who have witnessed, you know, growth and challenge at their, their companies that they're at or have just been at, um, seeing what they might come up with. Similarly, I think there will be an interesting ecosystem that comes out of the Huck Group um, now that it's publicly listed and in Manchester. And I think that'll be really interesting to look for as well. And that's less thematic and more geographical. But 
I also agree with SDG and ESG on the thematic side. Um, and I also think there's just um, a lot more to sort of think about with respect to what COVID has forced us to think about. So Eric talked about, you know, places and spaces, but I also think about sort of, you know, dealing with systemic inequities um, and thinking about sort of social issues, uh, bringing greater inclusion to propositions or services um, of all sectors and all types of all segments. Uh, there's a lot there to be done too. So I think there's a lot of ecosystems. Uh, I'm not sure what we haven't talked about. I guess there are there are more geographical splits, but I think um, as Eric will attest, most of the time, you know, investors and you know consumers alike are more driven by the team and the ethos of a business rather than where it's based physically. I wouldn't mind picking up on something that Eileen said there, which which we haven't really discussed properly is. I would say that I have not been as inclusive as I should have been in in thinking about diversity. Uh, I just don't think uh, I I have been as proactive in that as I should have been all the time that I was working on all of these ecosystems. And that doesn't mean that I wasn't inclusive or, or looking for diversity. It's just that I wasn't looking hard enough, I think, is probably the way um, that, to describe it. And I think that that will be a theme going forward. I think that the elitism of the tech industry uh, does need to be addressed. Uh, it does need to be more inclusive. And so that's why we, we, we are going for super growth, but sustainable super growth with impact. And I think that that's going to be the theme that runs through this next generation of entrepreneurs and founders. And by the way, the big corporations are going to want to snap them up because it's harder for them to earn the credentials that a startup can in that space. Uh, so I think that that's, uh, if you like, a thematic that is something that we could think about uh, going forward. Certainly, and, and thank you for being so so honest in that sense, Eric. I think certainly it's it's come become front of mind in 2020 as, as the, the spotlight of COVID is, as, uh, or the spotlight that COVID has brought has really highlighted the inequities in society and the tech industry can play a huge role in, in reducing those. There's so much I want to pick up on because Eileen's mentioned. I know I can see can see Yessie also just uh, just so eager to jump in there. I'm going to make one very quick point and just uh, and bring bring you back in, Yessie. You know, this this thematic discussion is actually key in terms of investment attraction. If you bolster your ecosystem and make it known for a specific subsector, uh, part of technology, or, or whether even it's just legacy industries. That is a way that you can differentiate yourself on the global stage in an increasingly competitive investment landscape. Um, so that's the one point I'm going to make. I'm going to let you come in, Yessi, because uh, I know I've, I've been talking for a while now. So. No, all good. It's just obviously listeners won't be able to see, but I've literally been nodding along in excitement and my but my head's been bouncing like there's no tomorrow. I think everything you said really like uh, resonates with me. I think even the conversation around diversity and inclusion, I am so happy that that's finally getting the attention that it so rightly deserves and needs. And I think that's also been a systemic problem in, in London, but in, in, probably even worse in other hubs. I think um, I think you may have touched on it, Eileen, earlier, but I think the fact that now people are more free to work remotely uh, would only mean that actually perhaps businesses do have easier access to talent that they maybe had no prior access to in the past. Um, the other thing I just wanted to bring up is, um, you know, from my conversations with industry and entrepreneurs and founders, 
Um, I think the one thing that's come out of the pandemic that's actually really been beneficial for everybody is the conversation around mental health and well-being. Um, and I've certainly felt it on a personal level. It's been a really tough year, right? Even though it feels like a decade, it's only yes. been a year. Um, so I just wonder whether that's also something that's kind of on your radar. Are you looking for companies in that space? And if so, what's going to um, get your attention? How can people stand out? So I think I'm glad you brought that up and I'm sorry that we hadn't touched on it sooner. I think you're absolutely right that the pandemic has helped to, you know, bring into really sharp focus how important mental wellness is. And I know it was always a talking point, just like maybe ESG was even before 2020. Mm -hmm. But I think this year has forced chief executives of companies of all sizes to really take stock and understand that, you know, workforces, teammates, uh, colleagues are only as good as, you know, how they feel about their health, their well-being, their families, and whether or not they're able to look after them. Um, and so that really has been a really important, I think, driver that's come out of COVID-19, and I'm hoping that it stays with us. Um, we have invested in mental wellness uh, at um, Mashin, and we will continue to look at that sector for sure. I think what we're glad to see is that it feels like, especially if you were to have B2B propositions, that you will have greater appetite then from corporate clients to also invest in this um, and that there's a real reason to do it. That makes a lot of sense and it's great to hear that. And Eric, from your perspective? Yeah, uh, it's, it's so wonderful to have the freedom to be able to talk about mental health. Isn't it wonderful that we've been somehow as a society been given permission to do that? Um, thank goodness for that, because it was awful. I mean, I, I, I don't, people don't really know this, but at Level 39, we did these things called founder therapy, right, where we saw struggling founders and we brought them in and we invited them to bring their, their families in sometimes or their partners, because think about how difficult it is also for the partner of a founder. You know, they don't know if they really are creating the future or they could be destroying their family, but they don't really know. And yet they kind of need to support them, right? And so bringing them in, it was very emotional, very tearful, and having conversations and seeing others talk about the same challenges meant that the understanding between the founder and their partner just became better. It really did improve. And then she started to make those risk decisions uh, together, far more together. That was the, if you like, the start of it. Uh, but also we've seen some fantastic apps come, uh, come to, to help with uh, mental health as well. So I think it's, it's really good to see that. And it's, um, I think it's one of the barriers that is going to be removed as we move forward uh, is, the, is because we are now able to talk about it uh, a lot more. And that's part of the key of, of addressing it is to admit it and then talk about it. Yeah, I think the realization that we're all humans and even uh, regardless of where you are in the world and what ecosystem, um, you know, there's always people behind these businesses. And I think it's really important to make sure that we're all aware and break down those barriers. And, um, you know, I have an obsession and I say obsession and I, I am no, not lying with health tech. Like for years, I've thought I was a doctor. I've been self-diagnosing and diagnosing others for like decades, which is probably not the best thing to do. But I guess where I'm going with this is that, you know, 
there's always been like really hot like health tech um, ecosystems around uh, you know Oxford and Cambridge clearly and even London because of Imperial College you know the universities play a huge role in in the development of these of these hubs and clearly that's also become more of a focus due to the COVID-19 um, vaccine and whatnot so I just wonder whether you're seeing innovation in that space spring up across any other hotspots in the UK or whether that's still being you know still concentrated in in the in the hubs that we all know know about Ali Yeah I don't think that's coming out in any particular hubs I think another thing you know that covid has helped to reinforce is the fact that great technology great ideas and great teams can be based wherever they want to be right and Eric touched on you this new sort of thinking about places and spaces um and so if anything I think with remote working, um, you're going to see propositions that come from literally everywhere. And once lockdown is officially kind of behind us in all ways, shapes and forms, I think there'll be a big sort of almost a resettlement where people will work out where they want to be for reasons, not just because of work. Um, and maybe this is going to tie us back full circle to the beginning of our conversation about what governments can do to make their, you know, um, areas more interesting or attractive for people to be based in. But um, I think to your point, it's incredibly you know, important that we continue to invest in healthcare, um, med tech, um, health tech. Um, I don't see it coming out of hubs that we haven't already discussed, but it can come from anywhere because that's where the talent is. And frankly, that's where people all need, everyone needs medical care no matter where they're based. Um, so I think we're going to see innovation from everywhere uh, within the UK. Although I'm still the, a great believer that we can find these uh, innovations anywhere in the world if we if we can just look for them i mean i'm going to share this with you yes you're going to love this i know you're going to want it this is the world i'm holding this up to the screen for all those on the podcast it's a tiny little device it looks like a little watch it is the world's smallest blood pressure monitor it is incredible i'm trying to negotiate to get the rights for it to develop it as a uk and european wide product so uh, and and that's uh, from you know it's not from the uk but i'm fighting to get it into the uk because it's a great place to you know, invest in this type of company and turn them into great international companies. I mean, uh, let me know when you want one. You can put you on the uh, on the beta list. Well, I was just going to say, I should probably tell you that I have a tendency to check my blood pressure about 10 times a day, which, by the way, I don't recommend to anyone listening to this. It's not something you should do. <laughs> Follow medical guidance always. But yeah, keep me posted. But I think uh, you've made a vital point there and you've echoed exactly what Eileen said. These amazing technology ecosystems can emerge anywhere. And that's why we've seen this emergence of um, more nascent ecosystems that have, that have grown in terms of prominence, successful companies um, and, and the investment that's flowing into them. And of course, I think we're going to have to close off this conversation pretty soon. But one point that resonated also is you know, the involvement of corporates. Corporates have become increasingly active in their investments in startups and tech ecosystems. The development of that ecosystem also brings that more legacy capital, if you like. Um, but yeah, this conversation has been fascinating. And thank you both for, for joining us on this, on this first episode of the Rising Ecosystem podcast. It's been amazing to, to pick your brains and hear about your experiences. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Jesse, did you have any final, final closing thoughts? No, I think it's been a lot of food for thought, a lot of stuff that I definitely didn't know myself. So I'm very grateful for the insight and knowledge. And you will always be the inaugural guests. I guess you sh shall forever be known as E Squared, Eileen and Eric. I like that. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to 
to join you for the very first podcast and really good to chat with Eric again. It's been too long. It has been too long. And oh, thank you for bringing us back, back to you, for reconnecting us. And the very best of luck with your podcast. And remember, I would just say the future really does depend on entrepreneurs. So we need to really get behind them. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to add one more footnote. We're about to go through a very, very difficult time, which is Brexit, only because of the uncertainty, right? Um, however, what we want is inspired policymaking that follows that, that continues to ensure that the UK and its entrepreneurs will be what help us drive the recovery. And so it, as a volunteer now, I still feed into policy, even if they don't want to hear it, they are going to hear it because it's really important. They listen to ordinary people like us that are actively involved in the ecosystem as they make the, the policies that are going to affect us all going forward. That gets edited out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so we covered a lot there about startup ecosystems. Uh, everything from how they can develop, like a toddler learning to walk, to use Eileen's fantastic analogy, uh, but also how governments can help support their growth and the sort of collaborative efforts um, between the public and private sector to really bolster startup ecosystem growth. Yep. And, you know, the toddler analogy is definitely something that I will be taking away from this. Um, but I was also really happy to see really pertinent topics come up. You know, diversity, inclusion and mental health, I think, are all becoming increasingly important and rightly so. But, you know, to Eric's point about the uncertainty in the horizon as the UK essentially divorce itself from the EU. Um, so a lot of things there for our listeners to unpack. Indeed, but this is just the start of our journey and listeners can look forward to more deep dives into the major themes of startup ecosystems. We'd also like to remind you that we do have a column in FDI magazine, which is written by Jesse herself, that delves into specific startup ecosystems. And we certainly will be doing a lot more of that on this podcast. So please do subscribe to the FDI podcast for more episodes like this and engage with us on Twitter and LinkedIn at FDI Intelligence using the hashtag Rising Ecosystems. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you all for listening and see you next time. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.